Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com Featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith Not just a profile picture For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com And the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website Is ready to help single Catholics take the next step In sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics Remember, CatholicSingles.com for faith, fellowship, and love. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic health share ministry to provide an affordable health sharing program rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthShare.com. CMF Curo. Healthcare fully alive. Hey, this is Luke Burgess. Welcome to the Inscapes podcast. We are on the road today in upstate New York at Stone Barns, where there's an amazing restaurant and an organic farm, where we're speaking with Fred Kirschman, who's our guest. Fred is known as the philosopher farmer, and he's one of the leading voices in sustainable agriculture and organic farming today. He has an excellent book. It's a collection of his essays, actually, that he's written over 30 years called Cultivating an Ecological Conscience. And the very first essay in that book is called Theological Reflections While Castrating a Calf. So I think you're going to find this episode very interesting. Hey, this is Luke Burgess, and I am in upstate New York at the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture with a very special guest. But I also have a guest interviewer, Claire Alsop, who is a recent graduate from the NYU Food Studies program, where she got a master's in food studies. And she's now the director of business development for a super cool company called Yolele Foods. And they import an ancient grain called Fonio from West Africa. So Claire's going to join me and help me talk to our guest, Fred Kirschman, who is the president of the board here at Stone Barns in upstate New York. And he's also a fellow at the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State University. So Fred, thanks so much for having us here. And Claire and I have both uh, read your book, Cultivating an Ecological Conscience, which we really enjoyed. Can you tell us a bit about the genesis of that book? Well, it's like the rest of my life. I've never done anything I've planned. It's always responding to stuff that comes up. And uh, most of the things that I've written have been like, you know, I'm invited to do a talk somewhere. And then after the talk, somebody comes to me and says, well, can I have a copy of that? I haven't written, it's just from notes, you know. (laughs) We'd really like to have a copy. Okay, I'll write it up. So then I write it up, and, and when I get them written up, then, you know, some of the staff people that I work with, they started to put it on our website, and then one day, the editor of uh, Sustainable Agriculture Division in University of Kentucky Press called me, and he said, uh, I've been reading some of your essays on your website, and we'd really like to have you consider editing those and getting ready to put in a book. And I said, uh, that's not going to happen. I said, I'm not going to spend that much on my one wild and precious life, you know, spending my time editing my essays to get them ready for publication. And he said, we'd really like to have you consider that. And I said, you know, forget it. It's not going to happen. And then that winter, I was invited to do the opening keynote at the uh, organic conference uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So, you know, I did the keynote. And then afterwards, of course, they had all the workshops. And I looked at the list of workshops, and one of the workshops was something like 
economic advice for farmers who want to do innovative things. And I thought, that's the one I'm going to go to. And of course, you know, after you do a talk, then there are a lot of people stand around and have questions. So by the time I got to the workshop, it was already up and running. And I walk inside the room, and the room is full of standing room-only farmers. And there's a woman at the desk in the front who's talking to them. And so I just stand in and listen, and she was amazing. I mean, her skills in the field of economics plus practical knowledge about farmers and what they were facing was so amazing. So after the workshop was over, it was now lunchtime, and I walked up to her and I said, would you mind sitting together for lunch? I would really like to you know, get to know you better. And she said, oh, I'd love to do that. So we had lunch, we had a great conversation, and then afterwards we exchanged cards. And then one day, she sends me an email and she says, i just been reading some of your essays. Have you ever considered publishing these in a book? <laughs> so I sent back an email. I told her about the University of Kentucky Press. But I said, uh, you know, this is not going to happen because I'm not going to spend this one of my wild, precious life. And then uh, she came back with an email and she says, well, I would love to do that. I'd love to do that sort of thing. And I picked up the phone and I called her and I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and she said, no, she says, I've done this before. I really loved, you know, getting things ready for publication. So then I said, well, if you're really serious and want to do that, I said, I will only be willing to consider that on one basis. And that is you have to be considered publicly in the book that you were the editor of these essays. She said, well, nobody's ever offered me to do that before, but that's what you want to do. It's fine with me. And so that's how it happened. Wow. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Fred. It's always interesting for me to hear the genesis of a book and how a book came to be. Uh, it's so many people work together to make that possible. Uh, I certainly know that from having written one uh, with a co-author. So you talk a lot in the book about values and their importance in your life. And you had some pivotal events in your life that ended up taking you back to a farm in North Dakota. Can you tell us a bit about what took you to that farm and how that happened? Well, first of all, what took me to the farm in North Dakota is I was born there. <laughs> I was actually born in the farmhouse on our farm. At least that my mother told the story. She said that back then in North Dakota in the 1930s, she said, when I went into labor, your father first had to go find the doctor because it, back then in North Dakota, at least, you didn't go to the office to see the doctor. The doctor went out to visit the farms. So my father had to first go find where the doctor was and then bring him back to the, back to the farm. And so my brother said, by the time your father found the doctor and got here, I was done with you. <laughs> so she actually gave birth to me with my three-year-old sister running around in the house. <laughs> so anyway, that's how I ended up in North Dakota. And then um, my father and mother started farming there in 1930, right after they got married. And that was still in the heart of the Dust Bowl. And... My father somehow, who was a, an incredibly uh, thoughtful and person of deep insights, despite the fact he only had a sixth grade education, and he knew somehow that the Dust Bowl wasn't just about the weather, which most of his neighbors thought. It was also about the way farmers farmed. And so he became a radical advocate of the importance of taking care of land. That was more important than anything else. And I can still today see him in my mind's eye lecturing me when I was probably five years old with his finger stuck out at me, telling me how important it was to take care of land. So I grew up with this question in my mind. How do people arrive at these different values? How did my father recognize that it was how we take care of land that was the important thing, where the neighbors thought it was just about the weather? 
and that was just a curiosity of mine as I you know, went through high school and everything. And the other thing my father was insisted on was that I get as much education as I could because, as I said, he was denied that. And so whether or not I would go to college was never up for debate. That was just a done deal. I was going to college. So off I went to Yankton College in South Dakota, which is a liberal arts college. And in a liberal arts college, at least back then, you took general courses your first two years, and then you had to decide your major before you started your third year. And I had no idea what I was going to major in. And then I started to hang out with some of the students who were majoring in philosophy and religion. And they were exploring in a disciplined way on exactly the question I had. How do people arrive at the values they arrive at? So because of that, I decided to major in philosophy and religion. And that then, you know, took me on the trajectory of uh, the, really the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, uh, both my father and mother were, uh, you know, they grew up in difficult times and started farming in difficult times. You know, they kind of had in the depth of their hearts the notion that you could not be wasteful. You know, you had to be very careful about your resources. And so... My mother, you know, who I suppose people today would not consider her to be an exceptional cook, but, you know, she grew almost all of our own food. And then, of course, we butchered our own animals, so all of the food came from the farm. And she always had a great, huge garden. And when she prepared food and put it on the table, she expected us to eat it, you know. And if you didn't eat everything on your plate, you were considered to be what today we would call picky, and there was a Russian-German term that she used, which is schnaggy. And when you're five years old and you're growing up and somebody says you can't be schnaggy, you know, the word itself seems so terrible. You don't want to be that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You had this wonderful childhood, it sounds like, Fred, aside from the schnaggy uh, on the farm in, in North Dakota. But you eventually left, and I believe it was to pursue your education, and you became a teacher and one of the things that I found really interesting on your journey was that you had an encounter with a particular student, one of your students, that absolutely changed your life. And that's interesting to me because normally it's a student having an encounter with a teacher or a mentor, but it was actually one of your students that planted some seeds that changed your whole journey, right? Yeah, well, let me add one other thing in there, which led me from Yankton College to graduate school. When I majored in philosophy and religion at Yankton College, there was particularly one faculty member that was so deeply influential on me. I mean, he was, his field was in religion and philosophy. One day, it was in March. It was actually on the 15th of March in my senior year. And I was sitting in the cafeteria having a cup of coffee, and he came in and sat down beside me, which just excited me. So we did the usual kind of amenities, and then at one point he turned to me and he said, so what are you going to do next year? And I said, well, I don't really know yet. He said, wait a minute, you're a senior, right? Yeah. And this is March, right? Yeah. Don't you think you should start thinking about this? <laughs> and I said, well, it's not that I haven't thought about it, but I said, I'm just not quite sure what I'm going to do. And so I said, you know, what? going on in my mind is I'm probably going to go back to the farm and figure out what I want to do the rest of my life. And then he turned to me and he said, you shouldn't do that. And I said, well, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, it's very clear that you have a great passion around values, but you still need to develop more discipline around that. And he said, and a good place to do that is in seminary. And I said, seminary? <laughs> he said, yes. And so what went through my mind right away is, did he turn out the way he did because of the seminary that he went to, which was at the Hartford Theological Seminary in Connecticut? 
and you know, if I could get that same experience and you know become the kind of person that he was, that would really be interesting. But then I turned to him and I said, well, I said, that's an interesting idea, but I said, I'm out of money now. I said, I can't go on to do any graduate work. And he said, well, he said, you know, you shouldn't let money be the deciding factor because if you go to seminary, you're very likely going to get an internship so you'll earn some money and there are scholarships available. So money should not be the deciding factor. And so I thought, oh, well, okay. So right there, I turned to him and I said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to apply to the same seminary that you went to. And if I get accepted and I get a scholarship and I get an apprenticeship and I'll go, if not, I won't. And he said, fair enough. And so, <laughs> so I did and I got accepted and got a scholarship and got an apprenticeship. So off I went to Hartford Seminary. And again, at the Hartford Seminary, there was another faculty member who was actually in uh, historical theology and who, again, really you know, inspired me. And again, it was uh, my senior year, and it was in March. At that point, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do beyond that. But I was doing a paper for him, and I had run into a block, and I couldn't figure out the answer to the problem that I had. And so I kept trying to find a time to meet him in his office. And he was very popular, and it was gone a lot. And we just couldn't find a time. And finally, one day, he said, well, look, I'm going to be around this weekend so I could come over to your apartment and see you, and then we could resolve this. And I said, great, you know, let's do that. So he came around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And in 10 minutes, of course, you know, <laughs> he pointed out how to solve the problem that I was having. I invited him to stay for beer, and so we had a beer, and we talked. And so he said, so what are you going to do next year? And I said, well, and it was at that time there was a friend of mine who was the superintendent of congregational churches in South Dakota, and he was interested in having me come to candidate at a church as a pastor. And at that point, I was really not interested in becoming a pastor the rest of my life, but I thought, you know, again, here's something I can do until I figure out what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And then he turned to me and he said, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, he said... I think you're the kind of person that should really go on and do more graduate work and, and earn a PhD because that's, you know, you're really qualified for that. And I said, look, I'm really out of money now. <laughs> and then he said, well, if we made it possible for you to go, would you go? And I thought, yeah, the faculty's going to get together and have a bake sale unless I made a graduate school. <laughs> so I, you know, totally unjust. I said, sure. And then two weeks later, the dean of the faculty called me and he said, uh, I just want you to know that the faculty met yesterday as we do once a year, and we select it, you know, students who get scholarships. And then we always have one fellowship for a two-year period to a graduate student selected, and you know, all expenses paid. And the faculty unanimously selected you to receive this fellowship. So, okay. <laughs> so then, you know, and I'm still enough of a farm boy from North Dakota, I could have gone to Europe to school or anywhere, but I wasn't ready to do that. So Yale, Harvard, the usual suspects. And every school that I contacted about applying had a February 15th cutoff date for that year. And the only school that didn't was the University of Chicago. So that's how I ended up there. So I earned my PhD there. And then now what I'm going to do, and so back then, this was when the Congregational Church and the Evangelical Reformed Church merged to form the uh, United Church of Christ. And they each had a, a five-year religion studies program for primarily for rural pastors. And they all realized that this was not, you know, the kind of future 
So they formed the United Theological Seminary in Minneapolis, which of course is still operating. And then they needed to have somebody start a new department of religion. And so they hired me to come back to Yankton and hire a new faculty and start a new religion department, which was really exciting. So that's what I did you know, for four or five years, and then had an opportunity to start a new program in religion studies in Dayton, Ohio. And this was, uh, there were five schools in that program. And David Better, he had gone to one of the seminaries in this program in Dayton, Ohio, because he was interested in a ministry to the soil. So he wanted to learn ministerial skills so that he could, you know, kind of be a pastor to other farmers, if you will, to help them understand the value of taking care of soil and, and be that kind of focus for them. And David Better did his undergraduate work at the University of Nebraska under Warren Saws, who at that time was, I think, the first extension specialist doing some serious research in organic agriculture. And in this research that he was doing, he discovered that if you manage soil organically, and this is not with natural inputs, but you know the way Sir Albert Howard would have said you should do it with the law of return. And then he demonstrated the difference you have in soil quality in five or six years managed this way compared to managed conventionally. And David came into my office one day with two photographs of two hands full of soil. You know, the handful of soil from the organic plot which was like dark and porous earthworms hanging off of it. And the other hand of soil would look like a handful of sand. And, and I see my father's, you know, taking care of land's the most important thing, you know. And I um, just became very concerned, you know, about that. And that kind of led me then to, I asked my father if he would consider, you know, converting our farm to an organic farm. And he was 68 years old at that time. And he said, what you're talking about is altogether different way of farming, and that's not for me, that's for somebody else. And then in 1976, he had a mild heart attack, and his physician told him he could still be a farmer, but he had to get out from the stress of managing the farm. It was too stressful in his heart. So my father announced to our family he was going to find somebody to manage the farm for him. And he was also a Russian-German, and so, <laughs> you know, for him to hire some stranger, to, I knew that wasn't going to work out very well. And so my family and I had a long conversation, and we decided, well, here's an opportunity for us and, uh, you know, to convert the farm to an organic farm. When you're farming, what makes you happiest about being outside? You know, if I remember in one of the essays, I talked about, you know, being out actually on a Sunday morning, and we had some newborn calves, and so... You know, and, and my wife asked me where I thought God was or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, it's you know, like it's in every calf, you know. <laughs> I, I don't mean that in any kind of sacrilegious way, but, you know, for me, it's that relationship, you know, to nature, that relationship ultimately to neighbors in the community and then ultimately even my relationship to myself, you know, that spiritual center in you. And those ultimately, if you... You know, what, I guess to try to answer your question, what inspired me most about being on the farm is feeling the power of those three relationships, relationship to nature, relationship to others, and relationship to myself. And that's really what formed, you know, my own thinking about that, my own imagining about that. Absolutely. So now I'm a little curious about how you became the president of the board at Stone Barns here. <laughs> and 
you obviously speak often. You're involved here at Stone Barns. Do you feel a sense of responsibility to be teaching others everything that you've learned and some of your philosophy? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I really think about it as a responsibility because, you know, to me, that was me. I have to do it. And I do it because I love to do it. <laughs> and the way I got involved with Stone Barns was really like the rest of my life. I did not plan that. The way that happened was, I mean, Peggy Delaney, David Rockefeller's daughter, she's really the one who came up with the vision for the Stone Barns here. And that grew out of the fact that when her mother passed away, and her mother had been a passionate farmer raising Simitol breeding stock here, grass-fed, because that was her passion. And then when she died, you know, they were trying to decide what to do with the place here. It was Peggy and, and her father David who then came up with the idea, well, it would be a great thing to turn the stone barns here into a place where the vision of Peggy's mother, you know, could be expressed and so that kind of honoring her gifts and her passion. But David also wanted to make sure that it had some income-producing activities so it wouldn't be a drain on his estate into perpetuity. So together they decided, well, let's invite an upscale restaurant here because there isn't one in the Westchester County area. And then they invited Dan and David Barber to start the Blue Hill restaurant here. Peggy knew that Dan Barber, as a chef, had from the beginning, and he had they had had another Blue Hill restaurant in Manhattan, Dan had always recognized that the best way to have the best food and the best tasting food was to find farmers who managed their soil for soil health. And then as a chef, all you had to do was to prepare the food in a way that allowed the natural flavors to express themselves. So Dan had these relationships with farmers. And Peggy knew that she needed some assistance in designing the strategic plan for this place. So she asked Dan whether he would help her put together a group of 20 or 22 advisors that she could meet with to help her design the strategic plan. And Dan had been good friends with Kathleen Merrigan for a long time, so he contacted Kathleen Merrigan to see if she would help him put together this kind of advisory team. And Kathleen Merrigan and I had served together on the National Organic Standards Board for five years, so that's how my name got put on that list. And then we were invited by Peggy to meet with her on three different weekends. And the more we got into that and were thinking about designing this place, it became clear to me that the heart of this was going to be developing healthy soil. That was going to be the core. And then, of course, you know, I still see my father uh, taking care of land, and I got really excited. And Peggy noticed some of my excitement, and so she then asked me if I would agree to serve on the board, which I agreed to do, and I've been with the organization ever since. So, so as you were speaking about soil, the soil seems to be a recurring theme in your life, right? Your, yeah. your father talked to you about yeah. the importance of that. Do you think that there are benefits to a person who takes the time to cultivate the soil? Does that cultivate something in them? Is there a relationship between cultivating the soil and growing in certain values in, in a person? Uh, yeah, I think that it certainly has that potential. Now, part of that, of course, is going to be, again, the spiritual center of the individual. But the thing that I think, as I look now, you know, ahead over the next 10 to 20 years, and we're starting to see this already. You know, for example, even as recently as 10 or 12 years ago, 
I still saw some soil scientists refer to soil as simply a material to hold a plant in place. You don't see that anymore. And the whole concept of soil health now appears in the literature over and over and over again. And David Montgomery and Ann Bickla published this book uh, about a year ago called The Hidden Half of Nature, which is the first time, and he's been writing about soil for some time, but in this new book now called The Hidden Half of Nature, he goes into great detail about the microbiome in the soil, that the soil is not dirt. The soil is this incredible living community, probably as many as a billion microbes in a single tablespoon of soil. And then when you manage that soil in a way that it feeds those microbes, then that affects the kind of food that you eat, which has the effect on the microbes in your gut, which then contributes to your own health. And his wife, Anne, who's a co-author in the book, and she writes about that part of it. And so this is one of the best examples now of the new way that we're thinking about soil. And to me, what makes that so important is not that you know you have to have this kind of spiritual experience that I did about soil. We now get this new dimension of how to manage soil from the science of soil. And I think that as we move into the future where we're not gonna have all the cheap inputs which we've been relying on for the last 100 years, you know, cheap fossil fuels, cheap rock phosphate, cheap fossil water, those resources aren't going to be there. So we're going to be relied more on how we manage the soil to enhance you know, the health of the soil so that it's more self-renewing and self-regulating. And this is the path that we're on now. And, and here at Stone Barns, this is the heart of what we're about. Jack Elcher, who's our farm manager here, he's one of the most aggressive advocates that I know of now, how important it is to, you know, compost our waste, put it back into the soil, that enlivens the soil, provides the better food, and it, the whole thing is, a, you know, what Sir Robert Howard called the law of return, you know, <laughs> almost 100 years ago. So to a lot of people that live in the city, thinking about soil may not mean that much to them when they hear about it, because they don't have that daily contact with the soil. I'm thinking of somebody that lives in New York City, for instance. What would you say to somebody that has not spent a lot of time on farms or how do we help people appreciate the importance of this? We're at the early stages of that transition now. And again, what excites me about Stone Barns here is that, you know, we now have about 10,000 children who come through here a year. And what we do with the children who come here is to help them understand where food comes from, how to grow it, and how to prepare it, because the chefs also are a part of this here. And, you know, I see this, well, let me just tell you one story to give you an example of what excites me. We also have some school systems in the region here that bring kids here and they spend a half day here as part of their curriculum. And one of our staff members said one day a school bus came and brought some eight and nine year old kids. And so she immediately took them out to the gardens to show them where food came from. And at one point she reached down and pulled a carrot out of the ground and washed it off and then handed it to the kids so they could all have a bite to see how great it tasted. And then she said, this one little eight-year-old boy walked right up in front of her and looked her right in the eye, and he said, oh, gross, who stuck those in the dirt? Now he can't eat them. <laughs> and that's where he started. But the feedback we've gotten since then is that this little boy then, as he became aware of that he could grow food and eat it, 
and he talked his parents into turning a part of their lawn into a garden so that he could grow food for the family. And so those are the kinds of transformations that I think we need to see and that to some extent at least we're contributing to. And then the other part of it is that, and I don't want to over-romanticize the millennial generation, but you know we work so, with so many of them here and they all want to become farmers and they all recognize the importance of soil is at the heart of this and part of this comes from working you know, with Jack and the kind of programs we have for young farmers here. So I'm curious, you said when you were young, you had this question about how do people arrive at the values they arrive at? Yeah. And you ended up studying theology and philosophy to try to answer that question. Right. And now I don't want to ask the big question. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what you have learned about how people arrive at the values they arrive at? That's primarily, to me, a cultural question. I think in our culture today, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, you know, Paul Roberts wrote this book, The Impulse Society, in which he points out that going back to the early 1960s, we began to evolve in a culture which he calls the impulse society, which he says was a kind of mine and now culture. You know, everything is about how do I extract what I need out of my community for me to enrich myself. And there's almost nothing in that culture that really has you think about or consider about, you know, the common good. And then he argues that we are now reaching a point where that culture is increasingly becoming dysfunctional and that we now are beginning to move into this culture of where, you know, people are beginning to recognize that it's, you know, the value of, of each other and that we have to work together for the common good. And one of the other things that, another book that has inspired me by John Takara, who uh, published a book again about a little over a year ago called How to Thrive in the Next Economy. And he writes this book based on his travels around the world. And he argues, too, that, you know, this industrial global economy where, you know, you produce something and sell it any place in the world in a uniform way, or you buy things from any place in the world for yourself. And that economy just wasn't working for people anymore. And so they're now throughout the world starting to move into what he calls bioregional economies, where people come together and they look at the ecological resources of their own regions and then try to decide how they can use those resources in a way that they become self-renewing. And he argues that the concept of growth changes in this culture. And I love this term. He said growth is no longer about unlimited economic growth, which would be part of that mine and now culture. Growth now for these people is regenerating life on Earth. How do we regenerate life on Earth? And that's the new culture that's emerging. So, you know, again, I don't want to be too romantic about that this is the world that we're all moving into, but he argues that it's already mostly in the developing world, but to some extent also in the developed world. And I think that's the future that we're moving toward. And so that culture will shape the individuals, you know, who emerge in that culture. And I think that's the future that we're headed toward. So it sounds to me like you would consider yourself maybe an optimist for the future. <laughs> what do you think young people really need to do if you could give yeah. you know one piece yeah. of advice yeah. to keep moving in that direction let me again because uh, when you use the word optimism i'm not an optimist and again something that i learned from uh, vaclav havel you know when vaclav havel became president of czechoslovakia and czechoslovakia was in a mess 
And apparently somebody came to him after he was elected president. They said, so are you optimistic that you can change things? And Bakov Havel apparently said, no, I'm not optimistic, because if you're an optimist, you figure it's all going to turn out well, and then you don't do anything, and that's the problem. And he said, the same thing is a problem if you're a pessimist, because if you're a pessimist, you think it's all going to go to hell, there's nothing I can do about it, you don't do anything. So he said, what I am is hopeful, and if you're hopeful, you do the right thing, even though you don't necessarily know that it's going to turn out well. And then if you're doing the right thing, and the right convergence of events begin to take place, then great changes will come about. And of course, that's exactly what happened. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> so you, you mentioned this sort of return to, I don't know if this would be the right way to characterize it, almost like a local focus on where we are, the land that we live on. Yeah. And the word home comes to mind because you, you speak about that in, in the book a bit. Now, I know that you spend time at Stone Barn. You're in Iowa. You're on the road a lot. What do you consider home? Yeah. Well, home for me is still my farm in North Dakota. And August is always my vacation month. And I take that month and go back to the farm in North Dakota. We have a family that uh, is taking over the farm there now. And I you know, spend the month with them. And I call it my combine therapy. And, <laughs> you know, it gives me a time to relax and, you know, be back in touch with with nature, with everything about the place. And uh, so it really is a kind of a restorative uh, time for me. That for me is, I think, the answer to your question, yeah. Just to wrap up here, one more question for you. An ecological conscience. Can you talk a little bit about that term, how you found it, and what it means to you? Yeah. Well, an ecological conscience for me is really... It's a kind of spiritual dimension within us. And the thing that becomes important for us, again, is not this mine and now and what's going to work for me, but it's how do you develop a conscience, you know, around the life, the self-renewing capacity. The, the term, the ecological conscience, actually comes from Aldo Leopold. He uses that term in the San County Almanac. And he uses the ecological conscience as we live in the world now we have to live it in a way that everything that we use is self-renewed in the process of using it. And that's what he means by an ecological conscience. And when the publishers asked me the title I wanted to use for my book, I wanted to say the evolution of an ecological conscience because I didn't cultivate this, I didn't develop this, this evolved in me. And they said, well, you know, we understand that, but you know, the book really is about agriculture and publishers you know, always use the first term in the title to indicate what field it's in. And if you have the evolution of an ecological, nobody's going to know that's about agriculture. So then they came up with the term cultivate. So, <laughs> Well, Fred, thank you so much for, for being with us and inviting us to uh, Stone pleasure. Barn today. Great, great questions. Thank and you. Uh, thank, thanks so much. We look forward to hopefully making it back up here and seeing you again sometime soon. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this InScape podcast. To learn more about InScape and the many resources we provide to help people discover, embrace, and live to the full their unique personal vocations, please go to InScapeVocations.com. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by 
Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.